All right. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. Now, it's been highly unfair and, in fact, immoral what we have done. We have left the old man Simeon holding the baby Jesus for eight days now. We left him there last Sunday and simply stated it's not fair. So let's help him out and take our attention over to the account that is given in, well, beginning in verse 21 of Luke chapter 2, where Luke takes the effort here to describe four events of mercy. That's how I'm kind of describing it for you here, surrounding the infant Messiah at only 40 days old. And I went through those with you. There were, they were purification, there was providence, prophecy, and partition. Covered two last week. We'll cover the next two today. The purification was covered last week. That was kind of the, the steps that Mary was going through as she had that that maternity leave prescribed in the law of God that first came through a circumcision to the son on the eighth day and then a presentation of that son in Jerusalem at the temple and lastly, a dedication. And all of that was covered in these verses beginning in verse 21 that when eight days had passed, meaning from when Jesus had been born, Before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him, that's the presentation, to the Lord as it's written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said, what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." And you get all this heavy mosaic flavor, the law coming through. Everything that's being done here for Jesus is law-based, the mosaic law. And I said to you last time, do you remember how the law of Moses gets such a bad rap, whether it's on TV or even from some preachers, as if to live under the law was to live under like being in chains and misery and everybody went around with a sour look on their face? trying to figure out how they could escape from the law. And obviously, the real truth is quite different. The law understood and obeyed, provided great freedom, great joy, great happiness. And in the case of Mary, you know, a 40-day vacation in which she couldn't cook, she couldn't clean, she wasn't allowed to. And yet it was the time when she and Joseph came together and fully consummated their marriage. And all of that was just to show that you're, beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, everything that the law of God stipulated, he perfectly was involved in it and fulfilled it, not only through these first eight days, not only through the first 40 days, but then all through his earthly life. So that, friends in the Lord, you have a Savior who did live under the Mosaic law in large part, so you would not have to in the sense that it would only judge you as a lawbreaker because you break it every day. And he lived it out perfectly. As as was said earlier, he was absolutely sinless. That means according to the righteous standard of God's own holy law, this one man never broke a single one in thought, word, or deed. All right. So that was the mercy of purification. Then we kind of got into the more of the story of Simeon last week, and we went into the event of providence. You might 
Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. And I mentioned to you last time that there's a little word behold that ought to be inserted there. If you have the King James, the New King James, it's in your version. So it would say, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem who was righteous and devout. Like, in other words, man, how crazy is that? A man in Jerusalem who was righteous and devout? Well, yeah, there actually was. And That means that he was righteous with men and he was also devout before God. You know that is the great city of hypocrisy. It is even called in the book of Revelation Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how bad it is. But there was a man named Simeon who loved the Lord. You notice also in verse 25 he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Those are messianic comforts. The kind of comforts by which if you have a a scripture-born hope in the Messiah, then you are able to endure all of life's incredible agonies, whether they are stipulated and ordained out to you one at a time in Syriatim, or whether they come upon you in heaps and come upon your life all of a bunch at one time. Nonetheless, if you have messianic comfort born to you out of the scripture, then you have hope and comfort through all those kind of events. And those sorrows multiply upon your heart as the waves upon the crashing of the beach. Nonetheless, if you have messianic comforts, they carry you through. It's like having hope, the reality of hope. And in fact, Every one of you who has this messianic comfort could indeed be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Simply because you have the reality that it's better to have Christ and it's better to be ashamed with him than to be loved with the world even to the point of death. You have messianic comfort or what is described here as the consolation of Israel. Then also it is described at the end of verse 25 that the Holy Spirit was upon him, and that was a special power to prophesy. And then lastly, it mentioned in verse 26 that it's been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So a special kind of communication from the Lord to Simeon. Imagine that, just to enter into the story a little bit here for you. Imagine you being Simeon for just a moment, And having the Holy Spirit tell you after 1,400 years of disobedient, for the most part, Israelite history, that you, you are not going to die until you've seen the Messiah. No doubt, Simeon treasured that closely in his heart. And so, look at verse 27. He came in the Spirit into the temple. That would be referring to the fact that he was endowed by the Spirit to be able to see that which the Lord had promised to him. That little phrase at the end of verse 26, the Lord's Christ, likely derives out of the end of Psalm chapter 2, as I mentioned last week. Psalm chapter 2 is a battle psalm. Psalm chapter 2 is a description of God's king coming down to earth to fight earth's kings. 
The reason why he comes down to earth is to take control of the earth as the place of his kingdom. And all the other kings of the earth are arrayed against him because they don't want him to take their kingdoms. And they arrayed their armies against him. And he, by the solitary power of his own might, defeats all the kings of the earth and subjugates them under himself with the idea of metaphor of placing my foot upon thy neck. They had a total and complete subjugation of the world's kings. Therefore, I believe it is appropriate for us to at least conjecture that when Simeon had been told that when he would see the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ, that he would see a grown man, not a baby. But it was a baby he got that day in the temple. As verse 27 continues, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out to him the laws, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. So picture this now, Simeon on the fly, changing from expectation to having a child in his arms. So this really leads us in now to the third point we want to talk about. The third mercy is prophecy. Prophecy being the direct revelation of God through a human subject without any alteration of meaning or intent in what that human subject says. So that, in other words, God speaks through a human agent. That would be the idea of prophecy. Simeon has a vision and speaks it out. That is first personal and then global. And the first thing he mentions is the personal part. In verse 29, he says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And those words initiate a connection so important, so simple, that yet most miss it. Salvation is connected to a person. He is holding the little baby in his arms. And now he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation, then, is not connected to a religion. Salvation is not connected to personal reform, to turning over a new leaf, to getting better, to putting away things that are bad for you and adopting things that are good for you. Not salvation. It's not a change of lifestyle. Salvation is not a particular political viewpoint. Salvation is not having health. Salvation is not having circumstances work out in your favor. Salvation is not financial security. Salvation is not internal peace in the midst of stress. Though some of those things I just talked about can come with Christ. But here, very simply, salvation is connected to a person, even if that person is only 40 days old, as Jesus is at this moment. So seeing Jesus, a baby who we are told in Scripture looked no different than any other child, in him Simeon sees beyond the physical with 
spiritual eyes granted to him by the Holy Spirit. And beloved, the evidence seems to be that he, by seeing Jesus, enters into the rest of soul, or the rest of peace that only faith provides. The rest of soul that only faith affords. Have you ever had the experience as a Christian where something, you know, all of a sudden makes perfect divine sense to you because you realize all of a sudden that it makes absolutely no human sense whatsoever? Almost certainly, Simeon expected to run into an impressive adult. That would be the Lord's Messiah. That would be the Lord's Christ. But the Holy Spirit shows him a baby, and suddenly the completely unexpected becomes the indisputable. As if he would say, of course, the Messiah can't be like one of us, but he has to be one who is sent from heaven as a baby. He has to be pure and sinless and yet raised fully under the Mosaic law in order to live out a life of full righteousness in order to be God's righteous branch. He can't be like one of us who's raised in this world and nursed on the suckle of this world's ways in terms of military warfare, political intrigue, religious power. He has to be different. He has to be born a babe. And all of a sudden, that which is completely expected in the natural realm is completely convinced when the supernatural enters in and shows that the natural expectation is nothing but human foolishness and the divine accomplishment is nothing but heavenly wisdom. I think that's what Simeon goes through here. You might have this assurance, for example, when as a Christian you come to understand that Jesus didn't merely atone for some of your sins. Rather, he, on the cross, atoned for all of them And therefore, you are completely forgiven by God and fully saved. Your place in heaven is absolutely assured based not on how you feel, nor how how you did this past week or the past month or something you did last year. But rather, your assurance of salvation is completely assured because the one who accomplished it was so perfect. And all of a sudden, you see that which was humanly expected was overwhelmed by that which was divinely accomplished. Now your faith finds rest. Now your soul finds rest. I think that's kind of the idea here of what's happening with Simeon. Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. Those are words of deep, 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 Spiritual comfort. He's basically saying, I can die now. That's what he's saying. I can now depart in peace, knowing that you will take care of my people. I mean, you will take care of what you've promised and said. That's why he goes on at the end of verse 29 and says, according to your word. And the language, I mentioned this last time, that he uses is master-servant language. We don't have that in our culture. But the word Lord there is a word that is even more, I would say, 
less relational than the word master. It was the word we get despot from. It's called despotes in the original language. And the word he uses for himself is slave. So in other words, he's taking God and he's putting God as far away and he's taking himself and he's making himself as low as he can go. And yet it's in the context of a connection of intimacy of the Holy Spirit and saying, oh, sovereign master, now you can let your slave die. And there is a reality then of Simeon's soul of complete peace. The fight is over. Battle's been waged. The faith has been kept. It's now time for me to die. And so he will. This is the kind of language that one would have used back in ancient Israel where the slave, after seven years of contractual employment under the master, is granted freedom to go. But he says in his heart and to his master, I do not wish to go. I love you and I love your family. I love being your slave. So they performed a ceremony afterward in which his ear was placed against the door and all was stuck against the lobe and hammer punched through the all into the door so that he remained the rest of his days with a symbol of his love and affection for his master. This is the kind of language in which Simeon uses to express his affection to God. Only those who are regenerate can know such loving affection toward God. And I like the fact that it's given of Simeon as an old man, because I think old men have a lot to teach us. I think they've run the race a lot longer, and I think their perspectives are a whole lot wiser. And I think we would do well as every opportunity to sit at their feet and listen to them, older ladies as well. For those who have borne the heat of the day, for those who have seen so many situations come and go, that we who are believers seek them out, honor their trials, honor their years, and ask them well-thought-out questions, and let our ears be opened to them. I think we would do well to do such things, don't you? Simeon then, after talking about what is personal to him, now I can die, says words of such vast import, importance of tremendous trajectory that they provide immense comfort for Mary and Joseph. He speaks right away two phrases that for most of the people in the temple that day would have been words that ought never have been spoken. The old man should have been perhaps arrested. Phrases that mention Gentiles in a favorable way. You know who a Gentile is, anybody who's not a Jew. Because for many in that day, Gentiles were the dogs and infidels of humanity. Look at verse 31 with me here. Here's the first phrase. Which you have prepared 
in the presence of all peoples. In the second phrase, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Those phrases are largely synonymous. That is to say, they basically say the same thing, but give us a little bit different detail. I think that which I want to show you is that these words are not talking about Simeon at that moment as he's holding the baby, but Simeon in flight. Simeon, as the Holy Spirit, bears his thoughts along to the end of human history. So allow me to show you that now in the text. Please look at verse 30 and notice what he says. My, you, for my eyes have seen your salvation. It's hard to tell in this version, but he speaks here in the present tense. My eyes are seeing your salvation. But in verse 31, he goes to what is called the prophetic past. Notice how it is in the past, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Therefore, what he is saying is, as I hold the infant Jesus, I am seeing your salvation presently. But then as he takes flight, he talks about how through this one I am holding, you have prepared something in the presence of all peoples. All peoples is another phrase for Gentiles. And it's in the past tense, but here he is presently holding. I would then suggest to you that that past tense is what is called by Bible students the prophetic past. In other words, as born along by the Holy Spirit, the speaker is so confident that what he is speaking is for sure going to happen in the future that he speaks about it as happened in the past. In this manner, then, his words assure the listeners that not only is this going to come to pass, but it has been decreed by the Almighty. Therefore, it must come to pass. That would be the idea here as to why I would see that this refers to the future, plus the reality of the fact that in verse 31, Jesus is only 40 days old, he's only in the temple, he's only among Jews, and he is not, as verse 31 says, in the presence of all peoples. Therefore, Simeon, under the power of prophecy, doesn't, in these words, see a future where Jesus is a grown-up man going around the nation of Israel doing miracles and preaching sermons. Nor does Simeon, under the power of the Holy Spirit, see Jesus on the cross dying for people's sins. Nor does he see Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrected and ascended into heaven. No, he sees him in the presence of all peoples. Therefore, what Simeon sees is a vision of Jesus after his second coming. This is then the end of human rebellious history. This is now Jesus on earth after he has been in heaven for the present time. He has now returned and all the peoples have been summoned to appear before him. All the nations, the scripture says, and Jesus foretold, would be gathered to him in Jerusalem, where he says in Matthew 24 that he will sit on his glorious 
throne. This then is a second coming prophecy. And I take the words in verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles to be a physical light. Jesus will be so bright that people will have to shield their faces from him. The word presence here is the word face. You could read verse 31, which you have prepared in the face of all peoples. In other words, a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. Then he is described as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. So the idea then would be that all the Gentiles of the world in the second coming are brought before the Messiah, the Lord's Christ, where they see him, but they can't see him because they must shield their eyes from him because of his own brilliance. And then, at the very end of verse 32, Israel is mentioned with these carefully chosen words, and the glory of your people, Israel. That's where now Simeon focuses on God's ancient covenant people, And so you combine the two together, Gentile and Jew, and you now have the culmination of human history where the God-man, Jesus Christ, is on his throne and Jew and Gentile are before him. And please notice the one word that describes him at the end of verse 32, the word glory. Now, glory could be taken several ways here. It could be taken that he's the best. In other words, the idea would be that of all the people of Israel, Jesus was the best. He was the best Israelite ever. He's the the ultimate Israelite, the glory of Israel. But that really doesn't do him justice because he's so far superior to anyone who ever arose out of Israel. It's not fair to compare him to any other human being. He really is in a class all by himself. It could be taken then in the sense of praise. You could be saying, well, Jesus is the praise of Israel. He's the praise of your people, Israel. And I think that gets closer, but not close enough. I think the best sense here is that they will worship him. They will worship him. They will find him so full of doxa, Weight, glory. As they are in his presence, that worship will be face down in order to protect one's eyes and in order to yield proper homage to this one who they are in the physical presence of. And so then perhaps the idea of the dual use of light and glory in verse 32 is that Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God the Father here. This is the glory of God now in its undiminished effulgence shining out in radiance for all the peoples to see and behold. Now when he came the first time, He had glory, but it was shielded by the human body. In the Gospel of John, John says, And the Word became flesh. That's Jesus, the eternal Word, communication from God. It became flesh, humanity. 
And then he says, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But that glory was like the sun being put on a massive dimmer switch. But not here. Not in the words granted by the Holy Spirit to Simeon. That this one will be a light and this one will be a glory to all the peoples. So the idea then would be that in the future, Gentiles and Jews shall see him unshielded, unshrouded in the glory of his Father, that which he always has beheld from eternity past and always shall behold into eternity future. Or to put it another way, when he mentions here glory in verse 32, he's not mentioning the glory that we attribute to Jesus Christ as his worshipers, but rather the glory that God himself shares intrinsically with the Son. Therefore, these are people who were looking upon the face of eternal glory. No wonder, no wonder, this is so awesome for Mary and Joseph. Look at verse 33. And his father and mother were amazed. Thaumazo. This extraordinary impression. This, it, it, to the point where in some situations it disturbs you to your core. But it's something to be marveled at. His mother and his father were amazed at the things that were being spoken of him. Well, this would be a great, lovely place to stop the Christmas message right here. To just regale ourselves in the hope of glory, of seeing God face to face, of having been redeemed by this marvelous one, looking forward to the future which is so amazingly brilliant and bright for us who love Christ. It would be so wonderful on Christmas to stop there. But just as the infant cradle is not the end of the story, but more the cross is kind of the end of that human portion of the story, There's more to come in this account. There's more to come in this account. And it's an event of mercy. Because while purification is a mercy, God's providence is a mercy, prophecy is a mercy, there's one more mercy to come. And it's the mercy of this partition. Partition. Look at verse 34. Just when you think Simeon's about to drop out of the story, verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Well, this doesn't sound so happy and also cheerful. Jesus is appointed to be two things, both of them metaphors. One is a sign and the other is a sword. Popularly, he's a sign. Privately, he's a sword. Popularly, according to verse 34, he divides peoples. He is appointed, in the middle of verse 34, for the fall and rise of many in Israel. That is an eternal fall and an eternal rise. 
of many in Israel. Many there really referring to all. Everyone who is an Israelite shall have their eternity marked by this one Israelite who is held in Simeon's now tiring arms. They will either eternally fall based on whether they repent and trust in him as God's own sent Messiah, or they shall rise as those who trust in him. This is the one who then divides peoples, nations, epochs of time itself. He is appointed for the destiny of men's and women's souls, and men's and women's souls' eternal destinies depend upon him and him alone, frankly. He is a sign of those who both love him and serve him and submit under his word. And then at the same time, those who do not, he is a sign of their future fall. And he is opposed in every conceivable way, even down to Christmas 2017 in this world. But not here, right, beloved? Not here this morning. Not among us is he so despised and so ignored. No. He's elevated, exalted, and yearned for, and loved, and prayed to, and appreciated. He's appointed for the rise and the fall of many. But then it goes private after it goes popular. It goes to Mary. Again, just leave off some of the things that have grown up around her through culture and history and religious history, and now just think of a Say, say, 16-year-old girl, 14-year-old girl, I don't know. And she's carrying, she had been carrying her little baby. And now you've got to hear these words like that. Are you ready? 35, verse 35, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. Ouch. Agony. This is a sure word of prophecy as much as all the others were sure words of prophecy. This is a good word for those of you right now for whom Christmas 2017 is not a lot of fun. Maybe your family is falling apart and you can't do anything to bring it back together again. Or maybe something that you were so hoping would happen has not happened. Or maybe family or friends have treated you awful or you've lost your job and you really are extremely concerned about the future. And everybody around you is happy and joyful and everything is supposed to be so wonderful and you're trying but you can't pull it off. Here's a text for you suffering Christian. Verse 35, a sword will pierce through even your own soul because this is what happens to every follower of Jesus Christ. There isn't a follower of Jesus Christ who's ever been a follower of him who hasn't had, in some form or fashion, a sword pass through their own soul because not only the cost of following Christ in a Christ-hating world will come true for all who follow him, but also there will be providences destined for this time and life that will hurt like a sword going through your own soul. But you will trust him for it. 
and you will come out the other side. And you will see the blessing of God on the other side. And it will bring you more joy and more comfort and more peace and more stability and more strength and more wisdom than you would have had had that not been appointed for you. Surely none of us thinks here that this was the end of the story for Mary. In fact, the Almost certain, isn't it, that this is referring to her seeing her own son get crucified on the cross? Can you even envision, I cannot, the misery, the agony, the pain that she went through of having him go through the three years of ministry, most of which she misunderstood, only to come to grasp at least some of it in strength and seeing her own son get crucified by the leaders and the rulers of her own country and treated as a malefactor, as a criminal, as a filthy piece of human garbage crucified on a cross, and everybody mocking her son? Can you even imagine? I cannot. Her firstborn. Her firstborn that she held tight through many nights and through many years of hope, and fears. And now the worst of fears are coming true. But that wasn't the end of the story. Just as for those of you who are having a suffering Christmas 2017, it's, it's not the end of the story for you, beloved. God is going to bring something out on the other side that is so much better, so much more perfect, so much more lovely that you too will enter into that repository of strength, of faith, that Simeon entered into in verse 29, where you can literally say, Lord, I can die now. Not for many of you should you say that right now, by the way. That would not be faith. It would be presumption. But come the day when hopefully a lot more Christmases have come and gone, And a lot more presents have been wrapped and unwrapped. And more sorrows and then less sorrows have come and been a part of your life and produced in you a wealth of experience, wisdom, and years. Maybe you'll look back. Maybe you'll look back at Mary. Maybe you'll look back at Simeon. And you'll recognize that when you're encouraged to walk by faith and to trust in the God of Mary and the God of Simeon and the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ, that it wasn't merely worth it. It was life itself. And so to all of you, my beloved friends here at Newtown Bible Church, both those who I've known for over two years and those who I've only just begun to get to know, My wife and I wish to you the most merry of Christmases. And may God fulfill all your most holy dreams and aspirations. Let's pray. Beloved Lord, thank you that we can stow up our life as it were with thee. The great God, the mighty God, the God of infinite power and might and wisdom the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is to thee that we thank you for this lovely Christmas Eve service and the opportunity and privilege we have had to render homage to the one who is so, so glorious, even Jesus. We ask for your blessing through him 
And we ask for blessing on this church. In his name we pray. Amen.